0: This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have returning guest, Daniel Medved. Welcome. Thanks, David. I guess I'm a
1: recidivist guest.
0: Yes, although I'm not sure we really want to use that term these days. I don't think we do. (laughs) Um, You know, it's really interesting. Uh, Earlier this week, um, I did an interview on uh, the Andre Thomas case out of Texas, which is probably one of the more disturbing death penalty cases that you would ever see. It's not a wrongful conviction case, but... It's got pretty much everything else uh, in it, including um, some pretty racially charged stuff and some mental illness and gouged out eyeballs just for fun, right?
1: Yeah, uh, it's really amazing. Some of these death penalty cases, as horrific as the underlying crime might be, learning about the process and how the defendant is treated throughout the process is often quite horrific as well.
0: So, you know, one of the things that we were looking at was an article you did a couple of years ago, um, you know, Black Deaths Matter and the Race uh, of the Victim Effect, which is really interesting in a not so good way, um, but um, definitely interesting how much the victim, uh, the race of the victim actually drives the seeking of the death penalty, whereas you might think that racism would show up, um, you know, with, with the uh, race of uh, the person who actually committed the murder, but that's not really true. I think you're
1: right. Um, a lot of people, if you just talk to someone on the street and you say, hey, is the death penalty racially biased? I think a lot of people would acknowledge yes. And then if you ask them, In what way do you think it's biased? They would probably say, well, more people of color are sentenced to death and put to death than white folks. And then if you respond by saying that's actually not true, white people are more likely to be sentenced to death and to be executed they'll be a little bit shocked. But then when you give the explanation, it seems to make sense, which is that most crimes that are eligible for the death penalty are murders. Most murders, of course, are intra-racial, white people killing other uh, white people, uh, black people killing other black people. And because of the premium that our society horribly puts on white lives, white victims of cases like this often get better treatment, they get greater treatment, more deference, more respect from prosecutors, which manifests itself in a higher rate of capital charging in cases involving white victims. So it is paradoxical and incredibly disturbing. But when you unpack it, it sort of makes sense, uh, given the, the racist origins um, and long standing ramifications of life in our country.
0: So, I mean, I understand this like from a statistical standpoint that, you know, most crime, despite what people may think, is actually, you know, intra-racial, right? Um, You know, uh, you have a white victim of a white perpetrator much more often than you have a white victim of a black perpetrator. Um, And of course, we've heard all the nonsense about, oh, there's a black on black crime wave type of thing. But what accounts for how the system actually processes and then treats uh, different victims differently? And is this overt or is it subconscious? Or how is that working?
1: Yeah, David, that's an amazing question. I, I mean, my impression is that it's it's entirely covert. You know, prosecutors wouldn't come out and say, hey, we are valuing this person's life more than another person's life. If you look at the data, it reveals that. And then we look beneath the data to try to figure out why. And this is just speculation on my part. But uh, part of it, of course, is that um, the prosecutors are suffering from some, from some implicit biases where they might be identifying more, because most prosecutors of course are white, they might be identifying more with the victims who are white. They are empathizing more with them as potential brothers and sisters and parents and children of themselves and just subconsciously are valuing them more. The other piece of it is that because of white privilege and socioeconomic status, it's quite possible that that the victim, white victims' families are better positioned to clamor for the death penalty, to communicate with victims' advocacy groups, to communicate with prosecutors' offices and have their voices heard, and maybe somehow encourage prosecutors to pursue the death penalty. Again, that's sort of speculation, uh, but that's another another part of this. Um, Regardless of the explanation, I think this is one of those situations where the data tell a really sobering story. Um, And one thing I mentioned in the article you referenced, and I really appreciate that you you read it, um, is I give an example of two different cases from Texas involving uh, women victims at the age of 32, one a black victim, one a white victim, and how in the case of the black victim, the perpetrator was given a life sentence. And in the case of the white victim, the perpetrator who was white was given uh, the death penalty. And even though, of course, these are different cases in different counties, I think it really shows some of the perverse outcomes here. Um, yet another reason, David, why I think the death penalty uh, needs to go away we can just not we just cannot ensure equity in its application
0: yeah and you know the other factor i suspect is that you know part of the system is you know looking at the impact of a crime and 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 there's probably a socioeconomic component to this as well that you know, if the white victim, let's say, is, you know, a college professor and the black victim is a poor working class person, you know, the prosecutor may subconsciously value the life of the college professor more than the working class person.
1: I think there's something to that, which is that all of the racial inequities that we see in society, including correlation between race and socioeconomic status, also infiltrates, I think you're right, the criminal justice system. Now, to be sure, there are a lot of white crime victims who aren't of means and maybe, you know, lack access uh, to the levers of power and, and to make make some noise. But I think you're right, you know, um, as compared with uh, many uh, black victims, they are uh, better positioned to do that. And regardless of their precise socioeconomic status, there is that question of white prosecutors identifying more uh, with other white people. And until we diversify the police and prosecutorial ranks, so that basically law enforcement looks like the types of folks who are embroiled in the criminal justice system, both uh, alleged perpetrators and victims, I think we're going to continue to have a lot of these biases.
0: So I do want to invert this question a little bit because I I saw something really interesting um, almost exactly a month ago. So um, down in Riverside, California, which for those who aren't familiar is kind of this eastern portion of the LA metropolitan area, it's kind of large in its own right. Um, But it's also much more conservative than say LA County. Um, There was um, the ACLU and the Public Defender's Office filed a very interesting motion to get the death penalty for two completely separate defendants uh, in completely separate cases um, thrown out under the California's Racial Justice Act. Now the huh. Racial Justice Act was just implemented a couple of years ago to kind of deal with some of these racial inequities. And the data that they came up with was really fascinating because it found that uh, you know for similarly situated uh, crimes, Um, So, you know, somewhat comparable circumstances that black perpetrators were like five times more likely in Riverside County to receive, um, you know, a death penalty charge um, as opposed to white defendants. Um, So your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, that's sort of interesting. I'm not aware of the situation in Riverside. I'd love to see your data and, and where that comes from. Do you have any thoughts since you're, you're closer to, to that situation geographically, at least?
0: Well, it was really interesting because, um, you know, the judge in um, that case ended up deciding that um, the situations weren't similar enough to the the white examples that he was willing to grant it. Now, I think, you know, this cons- uh, judge is a little conservative. And so it's going to be interesting to see what the appellate courts end up doing with this case. But, I, I mean, the number of cases uh, was astonishing, you know, in, in in a county that's not really very black Um to have, I, I don't know, I'd have to pull it up, but it, it was a very high percentage of death penalty cases involved black defendants, um, which was really interesting because as, as you mentioned, and as my understanding of the data uh, suggests, you know, overall that's not the case, but I guess on a area by area basis, it could differ uh, quite a bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, Um, one thing that would be interesting there, David, is to see the extent to which some of those cases involved um, uh, interracial killing uh, situations where maybe there was a person of color accused of killing a white person. Um, Because the data certainly suggests that even though the race of the victim effect is the biggest effect, that if you are a white victim, you're more likely to have the person who is charged you, you know, uh, accused of killing you uh, subject to the death penalty. Black perpetrators who kill white victims uh, have the highest rate of the death penalty, right? So there's, a, you know, there's definitely, it's not as if the bias against Black victims is contained to victims. It also pervades uh, how Black defendants are also uh, uh, treated. And I think that points to a really, really important issue that you alluded to, David, which is how to compare these cases. If you're trying to figure out whether similarly situated cases are treated differently, It can be an exercise in futility because you can always distinguish the case in some fashion, right? The perpetrators aren't going to be exactly the same age, with the same criminal history, with the same mental health profile. The cause of death and the manner of death isn't going to be identical. So it's really, I think, easy for defenders of the system to point to these differing results and say, well, you're gonna expect differing results because there are different cases with different variables. But if you you know, strip these cases down to their essence, statistically, there should be no reason why race should be a factor, right? It, it 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 these decisions should be based completely uh, divorced from the race of the defendant or the race of the victim and that's what i think is very troubling one of many reasons why we find uh the, these data sets very troubling
0: yeah and uh, i was kind of chuckling as you said some of this because there was kind of gymnastics hoops that the prosecutor was kind of going through but the judge was buying into it. Um, Mm. You know, oh, you know, there are all these differences here. Of course, you know, you can always find differences. And, you know, I, you know, on the one hand, neither of these cases were kind of gray area cases that, you know, if you believe that there's a death penalty, you're probably gonna be kind of thinking this case you know, kind of might qualify for it. So it's not like these were gray area cases, but, you know, um, uh, bad cases make for good law or something. Um, right. Some <laughs> like that, right? I, I mean, most of the, um, you know, a, a lot of uh, the critical cases in history have not exactly been sympathetic, you know. Right. Uh, look at Miranda, for instance. Exactly. Um, exactly.
1: Yeah, Ernesto oh. Miranda wasn't um, a sympathetic defendant.
0: Exactly. Um,
1: you know, in the famous Gideon versus Wainwright, Clarence Gideon wasn't a very sympathetic defendant. Um, in Strickland versus Washington, the ineffective assistance of counsel case from the 80s, David Washington wasn't a sympathetic defendant. So I think that's right. That, you know, the, the, the nature of the background facts plays a role in how the doctrine is constructed.
0: So this is, um, I, I just pulled this up as we were we were talking just to put some data behind this because it's yep. really interesting. And they actually asked uh, Frank Baumgardner, um, you know, um, who we had on a few weeks ago. Talking yeah, Frank, about. he's
1: great. He's done a lot of really interesting work on the death penalty in North Carolina.
0: Right. Um, and so since 1972 in Riverside County, 66% of uh, those sentenced to death have been black and Hispanic, while only 24% have been white. And then since 2005, uh, it's up to 70%, so almost three to one. Um, In a county that's, um, you know, probably if we were looking at the Hispanic population, it'd be fairly high, but the black population is probably somewhere around 10%, maybe lower.
1: Wow, I mean, a couple of things I'd love to know about Riverside. Then, you know, what is the racial and ethnic ethnic composition of the DA's office, and um, also what about the racial and ethnic composition of the the crime victims in those cases? Those would be really interesting data points. Um, maybe Professor uh knows that as well.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, anyway, I mean, you know, this is just one example of. Of you know, kind of the skewing of the circumstances. Um, you know, going back to kind of your research. Um, you know, how how do the courts kind of deal with the race issue? And you know, it. Um, you bring up, of course, the Furman case out of out of Georgia, and and of course, you know, the parallel to the California Racial Justice Act is that California was trying to fix, at least at a state level, Furman Mm -hmm. uh, by implementing the Racial Justice Act, Uh, but how does the Furman case kind of limit what we can do with race?
1: Uh, That's a really good point. So when you look back to the 1970s, of course, the reason why the death penalty was discarded, just temporarily for four years, was this idea that it was arbitrary and capricious and that it was rife with racial bias. So one way that states tried to change their regimes so that it would pass constitutional muster is to remove some of the discretion for prosecutors and have very fixed aggravating factors that uh, prosecutors would have to cite in deciding whether it's a death penalty case. So now there are statutes in these jurisdictions in the 30 states or so that have the death penalty that'll say, hey, you can only charge something as a death penalty case if there are multiple victims or it was a police officer or it involved a weapon of mass destruction or what, you know, there are various statutory criteria. The problem I think with that is even though the Supreme Court later determined in the 70s that that was enough to, to give them comfort, that there were some protections about the arbitrary against the arbitrary and discriminatory application of the death penalty. What we know is there's still a lot of flex in the joints. There's still a lot of room in that type of aggravating circumstance regime for prosecutors to display discretion in picking and choosing it comes down i think to this whole idea of discretion on the one hand our system is predicated on discretion discretion for the police to make an arrest discretion for prosecutors to charge a crime discretion for judges to apply certain sentencing and we want to give actors some discretion we don't want to make it too mechanistic too mechanical because there has to be a human element in the in in the in the system But on the other hand, if something is given too much flex in the joints, there's too much leeway, then there is always going to be an opening for the possibility of implicit racial bias. And I think that's the problem. We still don't have a good mechanism for clamping down on implicit racial bias. Because you can present this data to people, right, David? You could be like, look at the disparate impact of capital punishment charging in Riverside, California. And as you said a moment ago, courts might go through mental gymnastics to justify the data. Well, in this case, there was this aggravating factor, whereas in that case, there's not another one. So I think the problem is maybe we should limit the discretion on the front end of law enforcement and have a more rigorous vetting on the back end by appellate courts and in the habeas corpus process. And that's something that a lot of my other research has talked about, which is contrary to popular opinion, there aren't many robust appellate and post-conviction procedures out there to take a close look at potentially unjust trial outcomes. And I think we need more of them. The other piece of this, which I think is really interesting, and I know you know a lot about this, David, relates to Batson claims and crafting uh, racially um, slanted uh, jury pools, right? Or ra- racially tainted uh, jury pools. In theory, there are lots of safeguards against creating a jury that is monolithic, that is homogenous, that is not representative of potentially the defendant's background. But in practice, there are a lot of loopholes that will allow prosecutors to avoid that.
0: So. I, I want to go back to one of the points that you made in a second, but um, I, I just want to f- kind of follow up because you were talking about aggravating factors. And it seems to me that that what's actually happening is a lot of these aggravating factors um, have racial coding into that. Um, and, and so this implicit bias is actually coming up because, some of these aggravating factors are not race neutral as we think they are.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I, you know, I think that could very well be the case. I, 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 I admit I, I haven't taken a deep dive into the different aggravating factors in different jurisdictions and sort of um, correlated them to see what some of the trends are. But I think that's quite possible. And that goes back to, again, to some of the implicit racial bias that might have been animating the drafting of the laws that created these aggravating factors, that certain types of crimes are, are worse, right? Certain types of deaths, certain types of homicides are are worse, which I think you're right, which may reflect some underlying norms and values that, for lack of a better term, are, are white-centric views.
0: Um, and then, you know, the other point that I think you made and we talked extensively about when when we met last time um is, is the fact that there's just no failsafe in the system okay. and 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 so you know we we have this opinion of the appellate courts that, you know, they're throwing out all these cases on technicalities. <laughs> and the reality is that you see these people that have been imprisoned for a long time. And I was just reading this book about all these uh, you know, these drug cases uh that that were charged in the federal courts and how hard it was, even under the Obama administration, to get clemency uh to rectify some of these situations where. People, you know, got life sentences for relatively minor crimes. And then, you know, um wrongful conviction cases are are, are really uh difficult to get thrown out. And so, you know, it, it's just as hard when you have all of these kind of, you know, I don't want to call them soft racism, but you know, this implicit bias, uh, racism where, you know, you can't point to, you know, the prosecutor. Using the N word, although um, you know in my discussion uh, earlier this week uh, that actually happened, uh, and and the court still wouldn't throw it out. Um, But
1: it's unbelievable.
0: It's just astonishing. So you know you get these cases, and yeah, okay, a lot of these are not very sympathetic cases, and 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 so you know it's like it's not like you're talking about an innocent client, but yet you know when you Add up the to sum total creates this humongous racial disparity in the system I,
1: I think that's right and I, and I think it goes to something that you also talked about before, which is uh, you, you refer to it as soft racism racism we could talk about it as an implicit racist, racial bias, but the trick is how do you identify that right How do, how do you um, not just identify it but but call it out in a way that 's compelling enough to reverse a conviction? compelling enough to reverse a unanimous decision of 12 jurors, a unanimous decision in a death penalty case often of 12 jurors at both the guilt phase and the sentencing phase. And I think that's part of the challenge for appellate courts and judges on habeas, which is they see it maybe, or they understand it, but they not might not feel as though it's egregious enough to warrant overturning it. and And this points to something that I think is really Perhaps the most important piece of it is when these cases are charged at the front end and they're charged as a death penalty case at the front end, it's almost as if the boulder at the top of the hill is starting to fall down and it gathers momentum and it's inexorable. Right it's almost impossible to stop it after it's already started, so you could have better back end reforms to filter out these cases, but what we also need David is we really need front end filters to keep these cases from ever going to trial. Part of that, of course, could be getting rid of the death penalty entirely, but short of that, we could have additional screening mechanisms in place in every DA's office, maybe have an external screening mechanism of bipartisan neutral observers to look at these cases um, from, from a more objective perspective. But I think you're right. These cases are pervaded, they're infected with implicit bias, but detecting that, identifying it, quantifying it, calling it out as something that's worthy of reversal is sometimes a challenge.
0: And and this is really what California was trying to do with the Racial Justice yes. Act, is give a tool to get rid of some of this stuff before it gets baked in through a, a, a jury verdict. And what I saw is that that's gonna be a little bit harder than you think, um, depending on where you are. Now it's interesting because, um, and I don't know what happened with the case, but um, at the same time as the Riverside case, there was another case, it wasn't a death penalty case in San Francisco, but the judge did grant an evidentiary hearing in that case under the Racial Justice Act. It was a special circumstance case uh, where they were arguing that, Black people are more likely to be charged with special circumstance murder than right. white people. now the weird thing about California is we have a death penalty, but we don't have a death penalty
1: right when's uh, the last but, time there was an actual execution in california
0: it's been, um, while, right? it's been i don't know eighteen years or something wow. like that and mm-hmm. and there's a moratorium and um you know um. Now the governor has not gone in and you know commuted the sentences of death row, but they're clearing out death row.
1: Yes. Um
0: and and so it, it's this weird dynamic. We have a death penalty on the books. Some counties will charge it, other counties won't. So, like San Francisco has never um, you know, uh charged a death penalty case. Riverside does uh has like in that courtroom, they're going to hear three death penalty cases this spring and summer. See, um, it's, it's insane.
1: Yeah, I, that's one of the things that has always troubled me about the death penalty. It's one thing for a state to decide that it wants to have the death penalty, but the fact that your likelihood of getting the death penalty is dependent so much on the randomness of where within that state you live is pretty darn shocking or where within that state you might commit a crime. Uh, When I was in New York, New York had the death penalty for a relatively short period of time uh, in the 90s uh, under Governor uh, George Pataki. And I was a defense lawyer in New York at the time. And I remember that the DA in Bronx County in New York City just didn't charge the death penalty as a matter of policy he didn't believe in it. But the DA in Queens County did believe in it very vociferously and very strongly. And the idea that you could live in the same city, but you're in a different borough. And a lot of people in New York don't even realize that the different boroughs are different counties. And that could be completely, be a a complete factor in whether or not you're sentenced to death was always just bizarre to me. I agree.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you are in the Eastern part of LA County and you commit the same crime and then go over the border into Riverside County, you're gonna get two different punishments. Yeah, so, um, because LA County, they're not gonna charge the death penalty and yeah. Riverside County, they will. And so... And, and you know,
1: that rationale applies to state lines, I get that, right? If you're on the highway in Nevada, you're going to face different problems than if you're on the highway in California because the laws are different. I get that, assuming it's not a federal federal land. Um, But within a state, right? I think most people don't realize the discrepancies. You're exactly right. Between L.A. County and Riverside, Bronx County, Queens County. Here in Massachusetts, between Middlesex County, where Cambridge is, uh, which is where I live, separated by a river uh, from Suffolk County, Boston. Uh, that's it. Just you go over a bridge and you're in Suffolk County, but the law could be very different in terms of its practical application.
0: All right. Um, so uh, what's your remedy here? Uh, what's your conclusion? <laughs> uh,
1: you know, David, and you won't be surprised about this, but but I think when it comes to the ultimate punishment, the death penalty, we just have to abolish it. It does not work. It is not workable. Some of the problems that were identified by the Supreme Court in the 1970s about the arbitrary and capricious application continue to apply despite all of the statutory aggravating factors and all of the vigilance and supervision by courts and others in this area. We are still getting situations where race seems to be an outcome determinative factor in many cases in deciding who lives and who dies, sometimes just the race of the victim, but still the uh, racial components are propelling the result. And there also are far too many examples of potentially innocent or actually innocent people uh, being sentenced to death. Some of them have been freed from death row. Uh, some of them, we don't know if they were ever freed from death row, and we may never, never know. So I think the solution, frankly, is abolition. And anything short of abolition here is a is is only a partial solution. And it will never remedy the problem. It might just minimize it around the edges.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean, I've been an abolitionist on the death penalty for over 30 years. So wow. I, I'm not gonna argue with you on that point, the only point i would add to that is that you end up just shifting where the locus of injustice is um it's life sentences then it, then it you're becomes right life without parole becomes the focal point instead and you know you can argue whether or not you know you should be sentencing people to uh, die in prison um you know death penalty of a different sort yeah. and and then you can find the racial justice implications of that one.
1: Uh, You know what, and you're 100% right, David. Here's my approach to that. I'm an evolutionary, not a revolutionary, which is you tackle these problems in sort of gradual piecemeal steps. And if the death penalty is the most egregious example of racial injustice, in part because the result of the death penalty is so final, there's no appeal from the grave, as Professor James Acker said, let's first get rid of the death penalty and then we can focus on life without the possibility of parole which I agree with you um, has its own set of problems some people would say that life without the possibility of parole is perhaps a greater injustice than the death penalty I would disagree with that only because with LWAP at least you can have people out there advocating for someone who's in a cage and fighting for them. And there's a possibility of a change. There's a possibility of a remedy. Whereas capital punishment, of course, is final. As I said a moment ago, there's no appeal from the grave. You can't reverse that outcome after it's occurred.
0: No, and I I definitely agree with you on on that. You know, my only point was, you know, (laughs) the the system is the problem the death penalty is just the most glaring example of that problem. you're
1: exactly right there might be an illness with lots of different uh, manifestations of that illness and my view is go with the one that's the most painful the most um, brutal the most potentially fatal and once you've tackled that one go to the next and i think one of the problems is trying to figure out there's a triage going on figuring out what is the most egregious injustice in our system. And I think different people could have different views on that.
0: All right. Well, I will let you have the last word on that. As always, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Very interesting discussion. Um, I'm sure we'll be talking about this uh, more in the future.
1: Absolutely, David. It's always a pleasure to come on. Just let me know if you ever need me again. Keep up the great work.
0: Professor Daniel Medwed has been talking about the death penalty and uh, the implicit racism uh, in the system. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.